Welcome to Not Fair, the podcast, where we call out the inequalities, obstacles, or just plain inconveniences that stand in our way. I'm your host, Zoe Mitchell. Home, or as Dictionary.com says, quote, the place where one lives permanently, end quote. Uh, very straightforward. Uh, clinical, even. We know that home is so much more than just that. It's a respite from the world, a place to be with loved ones, a place to build communities, where we can be completely ourselves. Today, we'll hear two stories about people who are struggling to stay in the communities they call home. Reporter Anna Goni-Lesson is a recent transplant from Texas to Massachusetts. She brings us a more personal story about her new neighborhood, Chelsea, and how the people there are being pushed out. Chelsea, Massachusetts. It's right over the Tobin Bridge and minutes away from Boston. That's all I really knew about it before I moved here about two months ago. Like many new Boston residents, I'm a student who attends a bougie graduate program in one of the most prestigious cities in the country. I got accepted, got a scholarship, got a job, but the hardest part was actually finding a place to live. I ended up in Chelsea. The 1.8 square mile town is fewer than five miles from downtown Boston. On public transportation, it's a quick 20 minute bus ride to Haymarket Square. I came upon this small affordable town by accident on Craigslist. My landlord, who we'll hear from later, was one of the few who would let my husband and me bring our two cats and 75 pound dog from sprawling Houston to the condensed and claustrophobic Northeast. I didn't know it was going to be the accepting and supportive place I needed. I thought the Northeast was going to be cold, both in temperature and in temperament. People told me that Boston was the Dallas of the Northeast. They told me that people were going to be mean, not to make small talk, they'll just think you're weird. Right now, Chelsea is predominantly working class and Hispanic. But will it be this time next year? In April, the silver line of the MBTA will open, connecting Chelsea to the rest of the rail system. And new luxury apartment complexes and rising property values are already creeping into Chelsea. Is Chelsea already feeling the effects of gentrification? Will this Hispanic community stay in Chelsea or will they be pushed out? I feel like I fit in here, but am I part of the problem? Stay tuned. My name is Anna Gongi-Lesson. And this is not fair. Walking around Chelsea, it's hard not to fall in love with the neighborhood. Everyone waves. You hear kids playing, dogs barking, you smell carne asada, you see apple trees and sunflowers. You also hear noise pollution from Logan Airport. You smell weed, and you see needles on the ground next to the basketball court. But the real draw of Chelsea is that it's an affordable place to live. I moved here the same reason a lot of people are moving here, because I was getting priced out of the other side of the river. Rich Cuthy is the executive director of the Chelsea Chamber of Commerce. He's lived here for 17 years. I didn't know where Chelsea was. I knew it was close. I was told I needed to be afraid and then be really, really careful. And then I, I came over here and I had this nice little one bedroom on the waterfront and a brick brownstone. 
in this beautiful neighborhood, and I'm like, what, is, what are you guys talking about? Um, no one came to visit me on this side of the river, and they still don't, but um, it's not the story that people tell. Tati said Chelsea has always been an immigrant city. In the 60s, Chelsea was home to the Irish, Italians, and Jewish of the Boston area. Some Hispanics moved into the city in the 70s and 80s, but after four mayors in a row got arrested for corruption and the city went bankrupt, most of the older families moved out. By then, a lot of the Jewish families who you know, sent, their, sent their sons to Harvard and Brandeis, they had left. Um, and I mean, I wasn't here during that time, but I've seen pictures. It was, it was a little kind of dicey. It was a rough place. And I think that's when the Hispanics were moving here because nobody else wanted to. Most Chelsea residents live in three-family homes. Some of them live in apartment buildings, but they're small. They're not like the ones at One North and One Webster, which are right across the Tobin Bridge. Now there's a new apartment complex coming, luxury lofts, that will be built where the Chelsea Clock Building is currently. I don't know if it'll stay there. And it's right next to the Silver Line, which opens in April. 700 luxury units. Let's say that it takes two people to afford one of those, most of them, right? You gotta be talking 1,200 new residents into Chelsea in one building on one clogged road. Um, but that's one big injection of income, new and different people that are gonna be changing the fabric of Chelsea such as it, as it is now. So let's talk about that fabric. Um, could you maybe give me a breakdown of the demographics right now? So 62% Latino. If that was down to 60, big whoop, it's still 60% Latino, right? We have 27, it might be up to 31 languages spoken in Chelsea right now. Uh, we have Bantu people from Somalia. We have refugees from Bangladesh and the subcontinent. Um, but let's face it, by and large, it's a Latino community. The new people moving in, it's difficult to peg. So why are people just figuring out about Chelsea? I think they're just figuring it out because more and more people are facing the reality that you don't make enough to live in Boston. You're gonna have to go across a river um, or move into you know, a suburb. Rich called it. Anywhere that's habitable within an hour commute of Boston is in high demand. My landlord, Nathan Seavey, just moved into his home in July. The $600,000 three-family home sits on a hill near Volk Park. You can hear kids play basketball in the afternoons and smell burgers in the evening. It's a family-oriented place to live. Nathan didn't seek out to live in Chelsea. Out of the nine bids that Nathan and his wife, Monica, put on houses throughout the suburbs of Boston, only Chelsea came back with a yes. When they came by to look at the house, they were happy with the neighborhood. You weren't afraid. Afraid of what? People? True. <laughs> you just talk to people. Nathan grew up in Boston. When he was younger, his mother cried when he moved to Cambridge because she thought it was too dangerous. He grew up hearing a lot of negativity about other neighborhoods. But my whole life, Chelsea and Revere have been, and Lynn, 
Linland, City of Sin, you never go out the way you came in. That was, that's a real thing. That's a thing? That's a thing. Wow. Like I used to, you know, like, row, row to Boston, row, row to, don't fall in, also, Linland, City of Sin. <laughs> like, it's just like one of the nursery rhymes of this area. The main reason why Nathan and Monica decided to move to Chelsea was based on a financial decision. It was affordable. But the excitement of moving into a new home didn't erase what was already in the back of their minds. They know what gentrification is. Here's a fear that I have. Is that, okay, I've heard now that Chelsea's supposed to be this up-and-coming place. Which didn't really factor in. It couldn't have. Because we put offers in everywhere. Mm-hmm. It was not really a factor in getting, in try, in, we didn't try for Chelsea, you know. But it worked out. But now, I'm walking around in Chelsea, just bought a place. What do people think of me? Are they like, this guy coming in, trying to profit off this, da 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 da. I don't know. Nathan and Monica have only lived here for three months, but they've already taken steps to become a part of the community. They've met all their neighbors, they wave to the kids who walk to the bus stop every morning. For them, Chelsea isn't what the rest of Boston thinks it is. It's hard to change perceptions around here because everything is so rooted in the past. And there's a lot of people actively trying to keep that sort of reputation of things, you know, like Harvard being the best and you know, MIT the best. Boston is a college town, it's intellectual. It is what it, people are invested in keeping the reputation. And I think sometimes by extension that locks other places into their reputation as well. Mi Salvador y Mexicano is a restaurant on Broadway in Chelsea. As soon as you walk in, you notice the bright colors, the loud cumbia music, and the paintings of Aztec chiefs on the walls. They're most known for their $1 Taco Mondays, which is pretty awesome. And they have great pupusas, so I hear. Gloria and Vladimir own the restaurant along with the store next door that sells pretty much anything you need if you are Hispanic. Pan dulce, tamarindo, chicharrones. People go there and pick up food for dinner. The line's long. Their daughter Denise is 17 and goes to Chelsea High School. She works the cash register at the store. So I'm at the store, but the store gets super busy. And my mom, she works 14 hours a day from 8 to 10 or 11. And I come out of school like at 2, 2, 3 o'clock. So after school, I have my mom here until like 7, 8, and that's when I go home and do my homework and stuff. Denise said that her mom, who owns the store, has noticed that some of her regulars aren't showing up as often as they used to. But as people come and go, my mom has noticed that, that they wouldn't come as often as before. So my mom would ask them, oh, you know, you haven't been coming here often. And they're like, oh yeah, because we moved to Lynn. And then they, they would tell her that, that how much our rent is here, they can get double the offer in Lynn. So they move over there. Have you noticed regulars not coming in as much too? Yeah, I mean, we still, we still get a lot, like, don't get me wrong, we still get lots of people, but it's not the same faces that we would see every day on a daily basis, or a couple times, like, several times a week. We would see them like once every two weeks. Like I said, like Lynn is pretty far from Chelsea. If you don't have a car, then it's pretty hard to get around nowadays. 
Denise said she's noticed different people coming to the restaurant. And they're not Hispanic. So nowadays you you see you see white people walking here every day. And of course, um it's it's just real strange. Before nobody would ever touch Chelsea. Chelsea was it was spoken it's bad spoken of, but nobody would come in here because of all the negative things that that would go on here in Chelsea. But as those people are coming in, it is improving the city. And I'm not saying Hispanic I'm not saying Hispanics are bad, but they made a positive change. I guess it's debatable, but I'm kinda in the middle of it. But I think they the people that have come in here have I, they've colonized Chelsea, but I feel like it's also been for the good because before it was real bad. Chelsea was real bad. Denise summarized pretty much what I was feeling. While Chelsea has a negative past, it's gotten a lot better and it's an affordable and nice place to live. But for whom? The city has always embraced the working class, from the Polish to the Jewish to the Mexican, to the El Salvadorians, and Hondurans. It reminds me of a thought that I had during my conversation with Rich Cuffey. So I feel like, it, and you know, Houston is, gets, gets a really bad reputation because it's like, it's dirty, it smells bad. Like, yes, all that is true. However, you can be yourself. And I'm wondering if Chelsea is one of those places where you can open a store, or at one point you could open a store. You could be around people who look like you. Or if you didn't look like someone, that would be, that's okay. No one would be weird about it. Um, and I'm wondering if maybe I just happened upon like a little bit of that same mentality from Houston here. It has to be, you know, at the, at the heart of this, embedded in the DNA of this has to be that Chelsea's always been an immigrant city. So, you know, there were the waves you had, you know, the Irish in the mid-1800s during the potato famine. And then um, I'm sure, because uh, I know there's an Orthodox church here, so in the 1900s when a lot of Syrian Christians came to the United States, I'm sure a bunch of them wound up here. Um, we had the Eastern European Jews and the, the Polish and Lithuanian Catholics and, you know, just wave after wave after wave after wave. So I think it's always experienced that melting pot kind of thing. Whether you call it a melting pot, gumbo, salad, whatever, Chelsea is a place that's always accepted the working class with open arms. The whole reason I moved to Chelsea was because it was affordable and close to campus. I had no idea it was a Hispanic part of town. I had no idea of its reputation. The only thing that mattered was its proximity. Now I know I'm not the only one who moves here for these reasons. I can't help but feel a little guilty that I'm taking someone else's apartment, someone who, you know, has family here or who's been here for 10, 15 years. If people are already moving away to Lynn because they can't afford it here, I can't imagine what's gonna happen when the Silver Line opens. For now, I'll continue to patronize local businesses, talk to my neighbors, get to know people down the street, and become a part of the community that's welcomed me with open arms. This is Anagongi Lesson, and it's not fair.
Lastly today, reporter Rob Carter brings us the story of a community of elderly people who have found a new home at an adult daycare center that is in desperate need of funding. They got a decent team. Jordan Bell. He's good too. I like the squad, man. Yeah. Kevin Durant's going to stay there. He's not leaving. I can't convince him to join the Celtics? It's not going to happen. No, no. I wasn't looking for a debate when I met David Chandler, but he quickly revealed that his favorite basketball team right now is the Warriors. His favorite football team is the Cowboys. And his favorite basketball player of all time is Magic Johnson. Now, if you're not a sports person, this is like saying your favorite ice cream is chocolate or your favorite band is the Beatles. There's nothing wrong with those answers. By merit and critical acclaim, they probably deserve those ranks. But they're also just kind of boring. So I was getting ready to climb up onto my high horse when David dropped this bomb when talking about the Warriors matchup with the Dallas Mavericks that evening. My friend plays for the Dallas Mavericks, Nerland Noel. Was that? He played AAU for me. He went to Everett High School. He went to he was going to school in Everett, but then he went to um, Tabor Tabor Academy. Turns out David is the president emeritus of Boston Amateur Basketball Club, the state's premier youth basketball organization, which has produced basically every prominent NBA star that has come out of Massachusetts in the past thirty years. I know ball players come and go. Like, play for my AU team was a guy you probably heard of, Dana Barrows, Vermeer mm-hmm. um, Robinson. I know you heard of him. Mm-hmm. Patrick Ewing. No. Yup, I had him. I had a guy named Dana Barrows and Patrick Ewing. I was about to give this guy a hard time for liking the sports equivalent of the Beatles. And for the purposes of this metaphor, it turns out he taught Paul McCartney how to play the guitar. David was charming and funny, and he knew more about basketball than I ever will. But he'd just be sitting at home alone if it wasn't for the Rogerson Eggleston Adult Day Health Program where we met. So, uh, yeah, what do you what do you do when you come here? I do a lot of things. I'm a, I'm a good I'm a good Uno player, and I domino, and I play dominoes. Real good. How'd you do a bingo today? Any wins? No. I'd be winning off and on, man. I, I, I'm good at blackjack. I play bingo when I go out. All of the patients I talked to at Rogers and Eggleston focused on the same things David does. The games they play, art projects they do, and the community that they're a part of here. But they all said they came at the recommendation of either their family or their doctor. Adult Day Healthcare, or ADH, feels like a senior center where folks like David can gather and participate in activities. But these programs can offer many more health services than a typical senior center. A variety of on-site nurses and therapists can work with the patients all in one place, coordinating services and keeping an eye out for any problems. Yeah, I, my blood sugar be good all the time. David, for instance, is diabetic, and with help from the nurses, he said he's managing that just fine. But the Connect Four table opened up while we were talking about ADH. I'm going to go here and play here. You're going to go play some Connect Four? Hey, um, Adele, I'm going to play you. 
So instead, for the technical details... To start, can I just have you say your name? Sure, my name is Lindsay Jean. I spoke with Lindsay Jean, the program manager here at Rogerson Eggleston Adult Day Health Program. So this Adult Day Health Program basically provides um, seniors and other adults in the community who have um, some physiological as well as medical or mental health challenges a place to come socialize, um, receive nutritious meals, receive nursing care, um, as well as um, recreational activities, outings, um, celebrations. So it's really um, sort of a place that offers a home away from home, so to speak. Um, A lot of our participants, uh, you know, are are somewhat isolated in their homes because either their friends and family have passed on or moved away, um, or some of them do live in group homes where there's just, it's really just interaction with staff um, and maybe two or three other people that live in their home and not um, sort of a vibrant community like what we have here, where we have a really diverse population of people with um, a number of different challenges but everybody seems to really get along well and support one another. How is this different from say an assisted living facility? Sure. So our program is is really open 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., you know, Monday through Friday. So we're not providing the overnight care, um, but what we are providing here is, um, you know, again, that daytime socialization and sort of a community that people can rely on in terms of support. The difference also, I think, in an assisted living program, um, you know, it's really more about uh, giving people a place to live and sort of managing their symptoms, um, you know, while they're at home. Here, um, we're going sort of a step beyond managing symptoms. Um, You know, that's that's the the reason we're here, but we really try to enrich people's lives. So we're offering them um, preferred activities. You know, you may have just seen we were doing bingo. We also, you know, we offer um, our social services. People are really proficient at helping people sort things out. So say um, you're a senior and you come here and you got a weird charge on your phone bill that you don't recognize. Um, Somebody here in our program would be able to work through that with you. Um, And so you know, sometimes in an assisted living, the case manager may be responsible for, you know, 100 people that live in the facility, and they may not have the time to sit down one-on-one and work out those little kinks. So that's something that else that we offer here that I think sets us a little bit apart from the assisted living. It's a system that seems to work for everybody. Patients get the care and community from the program, but they retain their independence. And their families can go about their days knowing that the patients are safe and active while they're at work. But programs like Rogers and Eggleston are closing their doors all over the state. Most recently, the Sancta Maria Windsor House, just a few miles away in Cambridge, announced it will be shutting down at the end of the year because it can't afford its operating costs. I caught the executive director of the Massachusetts Adult Day Service Association, Michelle Keefe, after a public hearing in Worcester to figure out why ADH programs are being forced to shut down. Our last rate increase was in 2012, and those were based on 2009 costs. So we have a number of programs in the state that are in financial distress, and um, a number have closed um, in the past several years. So no, um, we cannot live on the rates that, that we have right now, and we're advocating as strongly as we can to try to get them increased as soon as possible. And if the rates stay steady at what they are right now, can you provide useful services, or do you need that increase to be viable at all? 
Well, programs don't operate unless they're operating within the regulations and they're, and they're doing the right thing. I think the, the bigger risk is that programs close. What programs do now is raise money. Nonprofits raise tons of money to um, supplement the, the state rate. Um, and other, other programs may do, uh, you know, pull from, uh, if they have nursing facilities, they might pull from that if they're a small nonprofit. So, you know, I don't think programs operate if they can't uh, provide adequate services or good services. Um, but we're just worried about very good providers who've been doing this. Some of them, um, Windsor House, for example, I think they've been in operations for 40 years. So we're really concerned about those providers um, leaving and, and leaving, um, lowering access to people across the state. And what happens to clients after, if their local program closes? Well, the first thing is they try, the program tries to find another program that's close by. Um, but what we've tracked this and what we found is when there's any disruption in service, even if there is another program close by, that, that disruption because of the, the uh, frailty of the people has caused um, at least 20% uh, of the people whose program have closed to go into a nursing home within six months. And we've tracked that data for the programs that have closed. And that's obviously at a much bigger expense to the state um, for those people. So a lot of people just end up going um, prematurely into um, nursing homes when they, they would, didn't have to. The irony, which Keith pointed out, is that ADH programs are actually cheaper than either putting a patient in a nursing home or sending individual healthcare providers to individual patients' homes. I checked this out with Brandeis economist Christine Bishop, who confirmed Keefe's claim. Bishop emailed me testimony she delivered in the same public hearing, saying that thanks to the centralized location, ADH programs work on economies of scale. The patients are all in one place, so doctors can use more time treating people and less time traveling. But unlike a nursing home, ADH centers don't need to provide, and thus pay for, any of their patients' housing. So why aren't they getting the money from the state they need to stay afloat? After numerous attempts to contact officials at MassHealth, I'm still waiting for an answer. But the demand for care from folks like David is still going to be there, even if the funding isn't. This has been Not Fair, the podcast. Next time, we hear untold stories from the opioid crisis. I've been your host, Zoe Mitchell. <laughs>